Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, a podcast going beyond the best to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and also talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Glad to have you guys along. Once again, I'm your co-host, Brent Henson, and in a lot of our episodes, I feel like I'm the outside observer, you know, just the guy without law enforcement or military background who just, you know, chimes in from time to time. But today's guest is not only a retired sergeant, but he's also an accomplished musician, a subject, my friends, that is well within my wheelhouse. So I'm looking forward to talking to him about some of that stuff. But before we bring him in, Allow me to introduce the lead singer of our band, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, Boy, sir? That's a stretch of the the definition of that word, isn't it? <laughs> My goodness gracious. Well. <laughs> I appreciate it, though. Hey, but you know what, though? As we're recording this, uh, you and I, we just got to spend some time together in person. And, and it's always fun for me. I don't know if it's fun for you, but it was fun for me hanging out with uh, you and Aaron and uh, Jimmy in Shelby County. Uh, I thought I thought that was a lot of fun. And I tell you what, if, if, if folks listening to this podcast have not gone to a virtual academy training where you're speaking, they're missing out because you you have one personality here on the podcast, very you know laid back and relaxed. But when you're teaching in front of a class of people, the passion you have about law enforcement and training, it's unlike anything I've seen. You really get into it and you really get the class engaged. And I would encourage folks to, to seek out one of those uh, training classes. Well, I appreciate that. And that right there is one of the reasons why I'm so excited about our guest today. Uh, because I've been blessed to to have hear him speak a couple times. And, and it's one of those things where it's been several years since the last time I heard him speak. But I can still tell you specific things that he said during his presentation that still resonate with me. And that's how you know you've got somebody good. Yeah. And listen, it's like you said there, I was running the camera for you the other day. And you made a couple of points that just stuck in my noggin. You know, I'm focusing on trying to make sure I'm getting you in the frame but I'm also hearing what you're saying. And and you had a couple of points I brought home and and told to my son. So I get what you're saying. Well, I'm hoping that our listeners are going to get some points today uh, because this guy is incredibly sharp. I almost wish we were doing a a dual podcast between the lines and a crossing the streams podcast (laughs) together, because I think he applies in both, but I'm excited to talk to him. So why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners something about him? Because we're going to find out a lot more, I believe. Sure. Our guest today is a retired sergeant of a large police department in Nevada and founder of Critical Incident Review, a consultant agency that helps police officers, their leadership, investigators, as well as civilians better understand what an officer experiences and how decisions are made during a critical incident. And while this podcast is about law enforcement, as someone who loves music, I may have buried the lead here because he's also quite an accomplished drummer. And not just your run-of-the-mill garage band drummer, kind of a musician like me who sits in his bedroom and plucks away in a guitar. He is a pro. He's uh, spent some time on the road as a touring musician. And oh, by the way, one of the most respected drummers of all time, the late Neil Peart, hired him to do an instructional drumming video, something I'm sure we'll get into as we go along in the episode. It is our pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Sergeant Jamie Borden. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us this afternoon. It's absolutely my honor to be here. Gentlemen, thanks for having me. Now, Jamie, I, I always tell people that look like me, which what I mean, look like me, they have a good haircut and they have a beard uh, that I appreciate those. <laughs> and yours 
is on point. <laughs> Just say it. This is my freedom trophy, guys. This is well, uh, <laughs> yeah. I uh, the the, uh, the beard is a thing of freedom for me. So I, you know, many years, I and I was, I was always very staunch with my grooming standards for my folks. You know, and don't don't come in with two days of unshaved beard on your face as a as a cop. Took all of that very seriously. But as soon as I was retired, that was the first thing that went out the window was grooming standards for me particularly. Absolutely, <laughs> I always tell people. I said, I've always wanted to have a mullet, but I was never allowed to. And now I've lost the physical ability to grow a mullet. So I'm growing a face mullet. So (laughs) So, wasn't it uh, Victor Lawyer who said that when he went uh, to one of the divisions, he he could grow out a beard. That's exactly what he did. Oh, yeah. The first thing you start start wearing biker T-shirts and grow a beard. Yeah, that was uh, the one thing they made me do in uh, when I joined the narcotics unit was grow facial hair. They're like, everybody's going to think you're a librarian. And man, get some facial hair going. So that was the only time grooming standards went by the wayside is when I was doing narcotics work. That's so. fantastic. Now, now you, I, I want to ask, uh, we have a standard fear of questions that we usually ask to get things going. But with you, I want to take a little bit different approach. I, instead of asking you what got you into law enforcement, I kind of want to go along the lines of uh, like, uh, is it the chicken or the egg? Which one came first? For you, what came first, law enforcement or music? That's a great question. And um, I'll tell you, I've been playing rock star and cops and robbers since I was six years old, <laughs> since I could formulate a memory. And I just had everybody bullshitted enough to where I got paid for both of them. So <laughs> all I ever did was was play drums and pretend I was a cop. That was it. Uh, you know, my brother's been a police officer. I, I think I was eight or 10 years old when my brother took his first job as a reserve police officer. I always looked up to my brother as a mentor from the earliest days that I can remember in my life. So he was a very accomplished person, special forces. He was in the top 2% of the shooters in the world. He's one of the guys that could throw a bottle up in the sky and shoot it out of the air with a 45 caliber nine times out of 10. He was, he was just a great shot. He taught me everything I know about firearms and, and I became passionate about that. So I was always a drummer. I was building little model drum sets at the age of six, seven, and eight. I got my first drum set when I was 12 and the whole time I was, you know, in the back of my mind, I was always a fan of my brothers and fan of law enforcement. And I would, I, I was with my brother at all the functions and there was never a separating line. And the crazy thing is where I'm at now in law enforcement and where my career ended up musically, a national and international basis, both careers fed off of each other. They never canceled the other one out. Everything I did as a musician fed into my profession as a law enforcement officer. It changed the way I looked at the public. I became, you know, a very squared, centralized member of the police department as a cross-cut section of the community that I served. Music got me in touch with, you know, sides of the community that a law enforcement officer in most cases doesn't have the opportunity to do. It's a different language. It's a different lifestyle. It's a, there's a whole bunch of differences in it. But if you look past those differences that are on the surface, the deeper side of it is there's so many tie-ins between music and law enforcement service to the community. The only thing I ever wanted to do in music was please people with my musical creations. The only thing I ever wanted to do in law enforcement was serve my community, help those people around me that I always depended on as a person in the community. I always wanted to be that pillar that people could lean on. And I'm not sure where that comes from, which is also why in retirement, 
I will not stop supporting law enforcement because the people that take this oath, that do this job, are doing it not because they're trying to get rich. And we all know that that law enforcement isn't going to make you rich. You can be comfortable, but we do this and, and I'm not saying all of us, that's why I say I protect law enforcement and not cops. We all know that cops are fallible. But the work that I do now, I refuse to stop doing the work for police officers that have taken the oath and serve this community, the communities that they live in, the communities, and they do it selflessly and they risk their lives and especially in today's climate. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a very hard place to work and my hats go off to every single law enforcement officer that's doing this job today and they show up every day and they do it with a smile on their face and they do it in good faith and they make decisions in an impossible environment to make decisions in. And I will always support you as uh, an expert in this field. I will always be here. My wheels are just getting turning. I'm 57 years old and I feel like my wheels are smoking and I'm just starting to get traction. So I'm foundational in it. And that's that's the answer, brother. I'm There's never been a dividing line between music and law enforcement. It's always been one and the same, just different hats. The last record I put out was called Between Two Hats. And that record was produced for law enforcement. All the proceeds from that record go to law enforcement, Wounded Blue, Thin Blue Line. So everything I do is between two hats, if that makes sense. It's one of those things where it's been my experience that people that are passionate about what they do, particularly in law enforcement, and from what I've seen in music, I'm not a musician, but I'm a hell of a listener. I can tell you that <laughs> it's what drives me. I can change my mood. I can change. But we, the people who are passionate are the ones who are often the best at it. And that passion very rarely dims. And that's what got me when I got to listen to you speak about use of force and, and that type thing. And you can be passionate about both. And I think sometimes in our profession, people think, well, you know, I, I don't I don't want law enforcement crossing over into my personal life, but it's going to, you know, it's just do you want it to cross over in, in a positive manner or a negative manner. And, and, and here's the thing about that. When you talk about crossover, I didn't ever set out to be a cop because it was a job that I wanted to do. This is not what we do. It's what we are right? It's who we are. These are identities. Law enforcement is very similar in that respect that people set out to do law enforcement. And at the beginning, it might be, yeah, it's a good job. It's a solid job. It might be, there might be directional indicators because there's some stability there and not so much today. But my point is this, is that individuals that take this job, this is who they are. This is why officers that retire and don't have anything in the works will often perish within a few short years because their identity has come to an end. And that's something that, you know, I employ everybody to think about is that if you retire, I, if you're like me, I don't idle well. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I'm, the world would not be a better place if I didn't have shit to do. So I've stayed busy to a fault and engaged in both music and law enforcement. And the point about crossing over is, if this is who you are, there is no crossing over. I am a musician. I don't do music. I am music. I am rhythm. I am. Those things just exist in me as, as an entity. Well, in my experience, guys, the, the law enforcement's very similar. And, and I know some people are listening and they're not having a great time in this career right now, but you ain't hanging it up. So don't tell me that this isn't who you are. And, and we depend on you 
to stay who you are in this environment. I would tell you that there are people out there that if you're making good faith decisions and you're doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons, you're going to have the support you need. And and, and it will be there. Um, I work with a lot of great people and I've worked with a lot of great cops and I'm teaching all over this country. Uh, people ask me, how, why would you want to work this hard in retirement? Because I'm not retired, I'm repositioned. And that's, that's where I'm at. So there is no crossover. It's simply who you are. And uh, I'm going to give a shout out here to, to Brent and to Aaron, who are part of this podcast. Uh, they have their own podcast. It's called Crossing the Streams, and it's a musical podcast. And they introduce each other to new music. But they said something in, a, in an episode I listened to recently. When you're not the lead singer, and perhaps you're the guitarist, the guitar is what you use. That's your voice as a member of the band. That's how you convey emotion and passion. And you tell a story with that music. And cops, I mean, you talked about grooming standards. Uh, we talk about the, the, the manner in which an officer carries themselves and the way that they look. That delivers a message. The folks that are passionate about this, that, that are law enforcement, you can tell a lot about a person the way they handle calls before they even start handling the calls, simply by the way they they walk up, by the way their car looks, all, all that, all that stuff goes to be part of who we are. Yeah, and and I'll tell you what, I was super staunch on grooming standards, and it's for this reason: when I put that uniform on, it meant something, and you could see it, you could feel it, and you could hear it. You could, you literally. When, when that presence comes through the door, when somebody has that kind of confidence and when that representation of what and who you are walks through the door, that is the first step to officer presence. And without it, we've bypassed one whole component in the use of force continuum in terms of training. I depended on, and I depend on it today, guys, I still depend on my presence to keep me out of trouble. I have a look to me that, look, it's, I have a fuck around and find out look to me. You know what I mean? It's not intimidating, but they're not quite sure that they want to push those buttons because there's there's an air about me because of my background that says that if you fuck around, you're going to find out. And I don't have to advertise it. And I never had to advertise it as a cop. I never had to overuse that authority. I never had to because I always put the emphasis on that staunch existence, that that presence. And that presence is first helpful and then authoritative, right? When authority comes first, we got problems. Those are the cops that we end up having issues with. It's not authority first. We end up with authority. Cops that took this job to get the authority got beat up in high school. This is a very rare occasion. The cops that I knew were good as a field training officer, I knew it because they took the job not to get the authority. They took the job because it's who they were. They ended up with the authority. And in that particular case, they use it very sparingly. Authority was something I did not want to have to turn to because authority is immediately followed by resistance and sometimes combativeness. And in most cases at that point, some sort of use of force, which brought me to where I'm at today. I have a foundational understanding of all of those components that lead to those decisions, including the scientific principles that back them. And I know what has to be done to get to a point to be confident and build competence in our officers. So, and, and, uh, and again, you can see the tie-in and all these things. I could talk for 42 days on this subject alone. You know what I mean? Well, it's interesting. You said that not till you said that, did I realize that's my parenting style is that I'm helpful to my child until he doesn't listen to what I say. Then I become authoritarian. 
but that doesn't happen that often because he sees the he has the respect for me where he knows where that line's at. That's right. Yeah, authority's going to come, and and it's it's something that in some cases it's helpful. It's helpful to someone in that scenario, but not everyone. Helpfulness is just helpfulness. So yeah, and and it and it it does help build respect. It helps build a fortress around who you are in that environment, and then you can work from within that fortress with good decisions. And listen, that doesn't mean it's that things are going to happen in an optimal environment, right, where we have time to make great decisions. Sometimes time is constrained. Sometimes we're making decisions that sting, and sometimes we're making decisions without all the information. That's called a critical incident. And that's where things become problematic. We had uh, Chip Huth on as a guest a couple months ago. And the whole thing with the Arbinger Institute is seeing people as people, not as objects. You can be helpful to a person. You can't be helpful to an object. When we're always dealing with objects, we're almost completely relying on authority as opposed to the buy-in. Listen, I'm all for using force when force is needed. But it can't be your first go to for every situation. Telling someone to do something can't be the first go to. You know what? And and I couldn't agree more. Here's here's the problem with it is somebody is predisposed to fight with police or to resist or to create a problem. You have to be able to identify that because one of the biggest problems we run into in law enforcement today is a lack of engagement. And it's because of the scrutiny that's coming from the outside. Listen, if it's needed, right? And I hate the term necessary. I hate the term proportional. Those things are undefined. They're hindsight attributes to everything Subjective. that we do as cops. And that's a whole, yeah, it's, it's the officers are in the process of making decisions without all the information. And the ability to read a human being for what and who they are and those attempts to use a lower level of tactical approach verbally or whatever. I will never use the tactic, the term de-escalation along with tactics. De-escalation, and I'm going to put this out there for all of our listeners, de-escalation is not a tactic. It's not a tactic. It's sold as a tactic, but it is not a tactic. It is a goal. It's a goal for officers to reach through a composite of tactics that may start at anywhere on the continuum. It may start at verbal. It may start with officer presence. It may start at the requirement to use deadly force. And that is incumbent on the behavior and the observations of the officer involved in those critical incidents. So reading a human being, being a human being in an event with other human beings is so wildly important. Here's the thing, as cops, we don't lose the right to protect ourselves in those environments. We do not lose the right as officers because we have the right to use force. We are expected to use force and we are trained to use force and by law, the officers are able to use force for particular things in in one of these events. We don't lose the right to self-defense just because we're operating under the color of law. A lot of officers will fail to disengage or they'll dance with somebody trying to get them into a perfect arm bar or one of these things. Listen, if somebody doesn't go into a control hold, when you put them in a control hold, they are a no person and it isn't going to work. You're not going to overpower them. You know, this is just human physics. I don't care how big you are. If you want to put me in an arm bar or a control hold and I don't want to go in one, you're going to get hurt. Now, you might rip my arm out of the socket and beat me to death with it, but you're going to get hurt before I go into a control hold if I don't want to. And officers, I've seen very fit, big guys struggling with a 160-pound assailant, and they fight for minutes until they're exhausted, until they're forced 
to then use a higher level of force because they didn't just engage with what was required to get this person into custody. So, yeah, and, and again, these all these conversations have tentacles, so forgive me if I go off oh, on a tangent uh, away from what we were talking the, about, but that's that, that's kind of where we're one at. One of the things that uh, we, we were talking about this week in a training that uh, Brent was there for, and I asked the class, I said, do you think that today – in law enforcement today, we have a bigger issue with excessive use of force, or do we have a bigger issue with officers hesitating to use force when justified to do so? And oftentimes that hesitancy, that reluctance, causes them to have to use a higher level of force when they finally decide to. There is so much going into that reluctance. Unfortunately, it's to our, our people's detriment. It is, and just think about this. When you get involved in a fight, with someone you begin to burn energy right now you don't have reserves by the time you reach 45 seconds into a struggle where you're attempting to use a hundred percent of your existing energy stores decreasing your ability to to fight at a hundred percent down to below 20 at 45 seconds by that time if if you're fighting a subject that that might be under the influence of drugs or who isn't responding to that fatigue like officers always will the officers are now going to be forced to escalate their use of force to control that person we don't have a lot of time the longer we try to manipulate an individual who is not able to be manipulated the the higher the chances that we're going to use an, an escalated level of force there's cases uh, there's 20 videos that reflect that today that have come out in the last 48 hours that show that exact scenario and it is a failure to engage with hundred percent of your ability to physically get someone into custody that leads to in some cases a tragic use of deadly force because a suspect gets your taser a suspect attempts to disarm your partner at that point we're at deadly force and the, the question is is could it have been avoided by putting a hundred percent into that at the top a punch to the face uh, uh, whatever it took to stop that from getting to the point where deadly force was required i'm telling you man as a cop i hit a lot of people in the face and <laughs> it, it, that was my go-to uh, you you had a couple of chances i'm not going to fight with you i'm going to do everything i can do to get you into custody and i still in decades i was working in law enforcement i never struck somebody and didn't have them thank me for not killing them after the fact because I never degraded them I never used you know profane language with them I never made them feel like less than a human being because I had to use force doesn't mean you're less than a, than a human being than than any other human being and I was respectful but I would certainly not hesitate to punch you in the fucking mouth if I had to and that's where I was at you know I and and I I went through my career I was in IA one time and that wasn't for punching somebody. That was, uh, I was in a fight with a 110 pound female and you could have taken a DNA sample off my truck from her face. I had her squished into that truck. She whooped my ass and she whooped my partner's ass. This was the craziest thing. I, and it's because I wouldn't use the required level of force to get her into custody because I didn't want to hurt her, right? Well, sorry, if you're going to fight, you're going to fight, and that's you're going to have to pay the price. Anyways, and, and that's not to say that I'm not a warmonger. I did not enjoy using force. I was good at it, and I could use force when I needed to, and I depended on that performance aspect of my career. But I, I'll tell you, get to work. That's all I can tell our, our guys, our listeners, our ladies and gentlemen out there that are doing this job. When it goes down and you've made that read, get to work. 
get to work, get that job done, because you're going to have less to deal with if you do it now than trying to fight through it. Being prepared to use force does not make you more likely to use force. And in fact, it's been my experience that those that are most ready, most proficient with use of force tend to use it less often because they're confident in their abilities and then they can engage. Part of the problem with engagement is that our people aren't confident in their abilities should things go wrong. It's like watching a junior high dance. It's incredibly awkward and nobody really knows what to do uh, until the very end and things go sideways. At least that's been my experience. Maybe yours has been different. No, you're absolutely right. Listen, I I fought in martial arts. I was I, I was a tournament fighting kung fu, and, and it was street kung fu. And I learned under one of the descendants of Bruce Lee. I'm I was inducted into the Bruce Lee lineage. I learned how to fight at a very young age, and I fought professionally. I was I had people inside of my bubble trying to hurt me or score points, however you want to look at it. And I became very accustomed to that. I was good at it. I di- I didn't fear, and to this day, I don't fear any human being because of my experience as a child and 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 growing up but that reduced the level of force that i've ever had to use in my career by i can't tell you how much and it again it's that fafo factor where they they read that in you they're not going to push those buttons unless they're suicidal slash homicidal where we aren't going to affect anything any of their decisions at that point they're simply want to kill or die and we can't control that but but i, I will tell you that the people that i know chad lyman jay wadsworth all these guys that teach defensive tactics they teach people defensive tactics so they don't have to use them that's the key to this whole thing is the the more confident you are with this the less you're ever going to have to do those guys uh, and you know the guys that learn under those extreme teaching and learning conditions from jay wadsworth and chad lyman and all these greats out there in jujitsu and and ground fighting and defensive tactics they learn under those guys and they put in hours they are invested and I will guarantee you a use of force with that with those guys will last under 10 seconds. <laughs> they use when they do use force, it's quick, it's painless and it's effective and they don't have questions about it. There, there is less likelihood of injury to every party involved, including the person that we're trying to arrest when we do it like that. It's that long drawn out one because, uh, you know, I'm not real sure what to do and I'm not real proficient in what I'm supposed to be doing. That's when people tend to get hurt. It's longer is never better when we're in these conditions. <laughs> the longer that fight goes on, and it's a game of chance to begin with, because we don't know the skill set of the other person. And the longer that goes on, the higher the propensity there is for bad shit to happen. Get it done quick. And that's what I, I, I really, in this, in this action versus reaction component of my teachings, I really try to drive home the fact that, listen, we got very little bit of time uh, to make those decisions. So be invested, be ready to rock and roll and, and make that stuff happen quick quickly, it's going to be safer for you. It's going to be safer for everyone. And whether it ends up in a lawsuit or not, or whether you end up in some sort of internal investigation, it's much easier to explain a shorter event than it is a longer event, because that's when why comes up. We start to counterfactually reason through these incidents, and it, and it ends up being problematic, not only for the officer and the suspect, but in the long haul, all the way out to civil litigation. Absolutely. Now, now I want to shift gears here for a second, because we've been talking about use of force for a little bit. But one of my favorite stories from your career 
had nothing whatsoever to do with uh, use of force. And you would think, listening to you talk over the past 10 minutes, that there are many people in society who think, well, this guy right here, he's out looking for a fight. You know, he's he's looking for he's looking for someone to, to, to square up with him. He's challenging people. He's the guy that takes his badge off and lays his hat on the ground. And says, Ain't nobody wearing a uniform here. But that's not the case, because I, I remember you talking about a call that you went on that was a disturbance, some type of loud, loud party or loud music. What, what, what can you tell our listeners about that call? Yeah, so there was a couple of those that happened. And and so my music career, being active as a a drummer in in groups around the country and taking this job, I would listen for those disturbing the peace calls where a neighbor would call in about the loud band next door, blah, blah, blah. And and there was a neighborhood where the police were very, very unpopular. It was a, you know, low to middle class, uh, middle income neighborhood. Every time the police would drive through the kids would you know flip us off and you know throw rocks at us and run and hide and it just became kind of the norm i took the opportunity to go to a disturbing the peace call where a neighbor had called in a loud metal band playing next door i show up the garage door is open and i see the drums i jumped the call they'd given it to another officer i jumped the call i took the call i went over and had been looking for an opportunity to get involved with the kids in this neighborhood in some form or fashion to let them know that cops are people too anyways i uh I show up the call, I come in and they're like, oh, we know, blah, 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 the cops are here. I said, no, hold on a minute. I said, just hold tight. I said, do me a favor, drop that garage down. And I had called into dispatch. This was not an officer safety issue. I knew who the kids were. I said, drop that garage. Let's see if we can figure this out. So <laughs> we dropped the garage. I get, I asked the kid, I said, hey, do you mind if I sit behind your drums? He's like looking at everybody. Yeah, go, go ahead if you want. So I sit down and I pick up the sticks and I just start just ripping going through this whole thing and he's freaking out because i'm in full regalia and his dad comes flying out the door i told you to shut up and he sees the cop sitting behind the drums so i said i said hold on and and so i stopped and the guy he's looking at me and he's looking at my name badge and and he sees jamie borden on it and he's like he you could see the color almost leave his face and he runs over to where he's got this tv and a DVR grabs all these CDs and instructional videos. He's like, "Is this Jamie Borden, the drummer?" I said, "Yep, that's me. That's those are my." He's and he, this kid, his life. I could see his life change in that moment. And the dad is sitting there. The dad is is you know he's lost in space at this point. And I start to talking to him, and I said, "Listen, I'd rather have you guys." in here doing what you love and i said I've, li- I've listened to you play i've parked out here and i've listened to you and you've got talent and i'd love to see you be able to process and and continue to, con- to cultivate this talent let me talk to your neighbors and let's get this place soundproofed and i asked the dad i said what's your budget he said you know x amount of dollars and like i said they were kind of low to middle income i ended up investing a, a couple thousand bucks and bought some of the soundproofing and and things of that nature and then came over and, and helped get this place soundproofed up and then talk to the neighbors. And I said, hey, listen, you know, these are the kids that are doing the right thing. They're playing music and you may not understand the music, but they're doing they're doing what they love to do. It's art. It's not villainous. It, these are good kids. Just give them the chance and let's set some parameters. And, and we, we ended up changing, A, we changed the perspective 
of police officers. I'm telling you, when we would drive through that neighborhood, and it happened with all of the cops in that neighborhood, they were getting, you know, thumbs up and high fives. And it, 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 all of a sudden, cops are now people because here's a cop that was a drummer that helped them follow what they believed was their dream at the time. And one of them actually became a very, very famous musician. He's a, a snare drummer and became very, very popular in what he was doing. And um, they were committed and dedicated. But uh, uh, the, the whole point of that thing was, you know, we took the opportunity as a department to get involved in the community. That one incident that lasted over the course of a month or two changed the view of what police officers were just simply because of a talent that I had that I allowed to cross over, like we talked about. You know, I, I allowed that human being that I was outside of the uniform be part of these kids life and I, I got texts and phone calls from this kid for years after that and this has been Christ, this has probably been 20 years ago now 15 18 years ago but um, a very interesting story and and probably one of the most prolific times as a police officer that I uh, that I can point back to about you know about my career in music and how it touched people's lives as a police officer now do you think that's the exception not the rule because I think the key is you want to humanize law enforcement. I think we all agree on that. I think we would get uh, much better results. But do officers have the time to do that sort of thing? Or should they just make the time? Or how can we resolve this? This would be my advice. And I see this. I'm going to tell you this right now. Every cop out there makes time to do this. If you followed a police officer around for 10 hours with a camera, you would see more interaction with the public that is absolutely lacking the fantastic or or the uh, sensational aspect of police work. I used to carry around a 24-pack of water. I live in Henderson. It's 118 degrees at night. You know what I mean? We had homeless people that were dying of thirst on the road. I would carry around a, a 12 pack or a, a 24 pack of water and I would see, you know, some of the homeless people that were regulars and I would stop and make sure they all had water. I would make, you know, just check on them. And I'm, I wasn't alone. Everybody was, all the cops were doing that. We're human beings. The problem is this, guys, is that the only thing that people see is what becomes magnified by the media. And it's never the humanity side of it. I told you guys the story of me interacting with, with these youth because you asked me. That's not the normal story that gets told in use of force or any of these other things. It was just me being a drummer and a cop, right? And using that opportunity to get in front of a neighborhood and change their view of who we were because we were there. We, we would help those people no matter what, come hell or high fire, we'd be there to help that neighborhood. And I just wanted them to know that we're human beings just like they are. And with, with dreams and goals and desires, and we're not mechanical robots running around out there looking for the opportunity to impose authority. Um, it was a big deal for that neighborhood. So my recognition of what police officers do out there is not shy of a Amazing. They uh, are cops out there from day to day in the 40 million plus contacts we have across this country in any given window of time. Most of it is humanity based. There's very, very few of these incidents that even end up in a nominal use of force. Uh, it's, it doesn't even land on the spectrum. Right. It doesn't even land. But you ask a college student how often police officers use force one in two contacts. How often do they shoot somebody every fourth customer? That's what they believe in our in our colleges. And that's the that's the media sensationalizing what it is that 
police officers are believed to do. And that's not what we do. It's not what any of you, that you didn't do that. I didn't do that. Nobody does it. But that's all they see in the media. And with social media being so strong these days, that's the only window they see law enforcement through. So I would just say, don't change what you're doing. Do more of it. Seize every opportunity to be a human being and, and show people who you are. Do not let your guard down and, and be safe when you do it, right? It's not worth the dangers that lurk out there. They're very rare, but they're there. It's called the lottery fallacy. We all hold the ticket. If we have a badge and the authority, we hold a lottery ticket to a tragic event. And we have to be aware of that. We always have that ticket in our pocket. Make sure that you're aware of it and be a human being. That's all I can say. We had Officer Dion Joseph on about a year ago, and he said something similar to what you're saying. He said, you know what people talk about, because he worked on Skid Row, and he said, people, pundits, they talk about what happens on Skid Row. He said, I walk the streets of Skid Row. I interact with these folks. He said, I'm there. They see me. They know me. They know me as as Officer Joseph or Dion in that, in that respect. So it, you, you're on to something where people who are not involved in the situation commenting on it when they have no uh, sense of what's actually going on. Absolutely. Yeah. And that 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 is a it's a complete fallacy. The cops that are out there on the street dealing with it are, are looking at this media, the stream of media just going, what the it is going on? I want to ask you a couple yes or no questions real quick, because I want to follow it up. Sure. Here. Uh, so so would it be safe to say that you're uh, somewhat of an accomplished martial artist? Yes. OK. Uh, w- would it also be safe to say that you are a pretty daggone good shot with your firearm? Yes. OK. And, and so you're pretty proficient in the discipline of using force. Yes. OK. Th- then why didn't it enter your mind when you had them drop the garage door to start whooping ass? <laughs> Why wasn't that the response? Because the thing is, it goes back to what I'm trying to show is just because you're prepared to defend yourself and others doesn't mean that you're going to do it improperly. And, 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 you know, I can imagine, you know, especially in society today, if you go up to some kids and you tell them, hey, go shut the garage door for a second, they're they're going to go to this thing. (laughs) He's going to use that guitar against us. (laughs) You know, he's going to beat us like an amp. You know what I mean? So, yeah. and, and, And here's the thing, man. Listen, and it comes back to this again there's a difference between being nice and being kind person who is kind is not necessarily a nice person i am not known as a nice person i'm known as a kind person but you know if i'm pushed to a certain limit you know just like with you or anyone else who's competent in what they do who will protect their families who will protect what's important to them we're going to do things that, you know, a lot of people won't endeavor to do only because I know where the line is at. I know the line between what's potentially going to happen and what is going to happen if I don't intervene in it. And I'm not going to pull any punches and I'm not going to apologize for being a person that will use force if I have to. If I'm pushed to that point, bring it and you better bring everything you've got because you've opened a pack of dynamite that is going to be hard to put out. I rest my laurels on that. I've never had to be that guy. Even when I used force as a police officer, it was very, very calculated and it was very intentional and it was never a this frayed fight for my life. It was always a very calculated thing and it, and it was quick and it was effective and I didn't have to get heated about it. I just did what I had to do. So yeah, I, I just, I'm, that never entered my mind, right? Right, I like using the phrase that when somebody is prepared properly, 
both physically, mentally, psychologically. What we get are responses, and responses are appropriate. They're measured. They're reasonable. What we right. what we see sometimes are reactions and a lot of times overreactions because they're not prepared and panic sits in and that that you know the amygdala takes over and it starts it starts doing things because it's just concerned about safety i guess my whole point here is preparation reduces the risk for everybody it, it does. And, and let me, I'll piggyback on what you're saying, because remember that officers get approximately two to four hours a year of defensive tactics training. That's not even enough time to memorize the terminology that you're using in the tactics that you're being trained. Amen. It's not enough. So, you know, and, and I'm a huge proponent of conditioning. We can teach someone, remember that exposure to knowledge is not experience. It's not application. It's simply exposure to knowledge. Exposure to knowledge is where we run into trouble because, we, because we've seen it. We think that we're good at it. It's called the illusion of ability. Most people have an illusion of ability. We don't know, even those of us that are, are trained and conditioned and prepared, we still don't know what we're going to do or how we're going to handle something until it happens. We don't know. And then we're going to sit and second guess ourselves based on the outcome of that, right? Even if we are trained and conditioned. So now bring in the problematic aspect of not being trained and conditioned and only having been exposed to the knowledge where you haven't applied it, you haven't succeeded and you haven't failed. So you have nothing to build wisdom upon. You have nothing to build a conditioned response upon. And uh, listen, we are taxed as law enforcement. There's not a lot of time available for training, especially in the hiring condition that we're in now. The people that are working are working their asses off and they don't have a lot of time for training because most departments are at 25 to 35 percent below manning in a good situation. Right. So where are they going to get the time for the for the training to even take effect? So. Confidence is built through that, that conditioning. Competence is developed through that confidence. And it comes through not just training, but experience and application. That's the only thing that turns this into a usable resource for officers. The more you invest, the more prepared you're going to be, the more competence you're going to show, and the less you're going to be involved in things that could potentially be tragic. So, and, and I think that kind of ties everything that we've been talking about together. Absolutely. So, so let's switch to music for a second. Okay. Sure. What were the videos that he, the, the dad saw? Well, so the years just before I became a police officer, I recorded two instructional well I, I recorded one it was called uh, advanced drum groups for the beginning drummer and it was it was wildly successful it was done through starlicks that came out and and it because it was a, a 30 minute VHS. Now, remember, I'm dating myself. That's when I used to ride a horse to work. Um, it, it was a VHS tape, but it sold a, just a ton of copies because it was inexpensive and it was very easy to understand. I then got picked up by a company to do uh, a video, a DVD, my first DVD called Stepping It Up. And that came out. So they had had they had the the VHS, they had the DVD and they had a uh, another double bass drumming VHS that had turn DVD that they were looking at. And so they had everything, every recorded work that I'd ever done as far as an instructor went. 
And so, and it was the kid that saw my name that had all these DVDs that went fumbling over to his TV and grabbed it all and was looking at my name and my picture and looking at me and trying to, to reconcile the guy in the uniform behind his drums to this guy on these DVDs. So quite profound that moment. I'll never, ever forget it. But um, so, yeah, those DVDs had been out and they'd done well. It was shortly after I became a police officer. Uh, I was performing with the guitar player from Aerosmith and the violinist from Kansas with a group headlining at the Bellagio in Vegas. And Neil Peart and Buddy Rich's daughter, Kathy Rich, who was my manager at the time, came in to see my band play. And he became a fan. He, you know, asked me to come out and sit with them. And, and you can imagine me. As a drummer, how does that feel? I mean, uh, I'm going to tell you something, dude. I've been in a lot of <laughs> a lot of incidents and I'd never been so nervous in all my life. I couldn't I couldn't muster up a sentence. And I was, you know, and, and I'm trying to not be all, you know, just goobly goop because I'd hung my hat on everything that Neil had ever said or done. Um, I was a fan of his work. And what broke the ice with him as I came out and he goes, he, he's standing in front of me and he's a looming figure. He's like 6'5". He's just a big dude. And uh, he goes, hi, I'm Neil. And I'm like, I, inside I'm going, yeah, oh, no yeah. shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I said, hi, Neil. My name's Jamie. I said, I'm a huge fan of your work. I really, really appreciate everything you've done. And at that moment, because I didn't go loose goose on him like I wanted to, because I, you know, this is my childhood hero. We became fast friends and, you know, we both rode motorcycles and. Yeah, I watched a video about Rush and it's almost like drumming was a passion of his, but he had so many other outside things he was interested in. Neil was a complex guy and he was uh, uh, he was a, a sweetheart of a man, one of the nicest people I've ever met. Uh, he would sit in this in this podcast with us and, and you would never know who he was. He would have plenty of input. He was passionate about a lot of things and he was very, very pro cop. And people didn't know that about him, but he dealt with the worst and the best of the best because he rode that motorcycle across country and he never did it below 95 miles an hour. <laughs> so <laughs> he got to meet his share of police officers. But he also, you know, when um, he was a big fan of the fact that, that I was a cop, he would, in his bus, would drive to Vegas. He would meet me at our outdoor range on his motorcycle on his way in to play in Vegas. His bus driver with the trailer would park. He had stacks of ammo. My wife was one of his firearms instructors. I taught him, you know, everything I knew about shooting. And we would shoot for three hours at the range. And then we'd jump on his bus and he'd take us into Vegas to the MGM Grand. And we'd sit on his bus while he planned his next leg. We'd have dinner with the group. And then, you know, we'd go out and sit side stage. I'm sitting side stage and Stuart Copeland's on my right. Um, the bass player from Primus is on my left. And I'm just sitting here going, what the? You know? <laughs> Where am I? Yeah. <laughs> Where am I and why am I covered in ants? So, but yeah, it was just a, you know, it was a phenomenal uh, experience to, to, to get to be a peer with someone like that, who I, who was, you know, a mentor to me on so many different levels. And, you know, on my 50th birthday, his, I was endorsed, I am endorsed by Sabian Cymbals and DW Drums and Vic Firth Sticks, all the same endorsement companies that Neil has. And so our, the Cymbal guy is a very close friend of mine, a brother, if you will, Chris Stanky, who is also Neil's Cymbal guy from Sabian. On my 50th birthday, they brought out his set of the Clockwork Angels 
symbols that have the the clock, all the, the imprint on them. It's one of two sets that exist. I got one of those off of his road kit from him off of his last show from his last tour. Wow. And, you know, somebody asked me, well, what are those symbols worth? I said, they aren't worth a dime. They're not <laughs> worth a dime. They will never be sold. They have no price tag. You could not print enough money to get those symbols from me. So, you know what I mean? But it's just one of those things in life that it, it marks a time in my life and a friendship uh, that was so valuable to me. And very few people ever knew I was a friend of his that didn't find out through him. And one of the things he really appreciated, I think, was the fact that I didn't advertise our friendship. He was a friend of mine and, you know, he'd come through Vegas and, and stop and see me. We'd uh, hang out as much as we could. I'd go out to his man cave out in, uh, in uh, the Pacific Palisades and hang out around his huge car collection. And we'd look at, you know, guns. I had him uh, an AR, an M4 built. Uh, with R40 engraved in the the magazine carry. In fact, he left that back to me in his will, oh. and I have to still pick it up in California. Kind of heartbreaking, but yeah, he had that forever, and it was up on his wall right underneath his motorcycle that uh, he rode when he wrote Ghost Rider, and um, I have pictures of all that, but anyways, I have to go pick that rifle up again, but he was just a fantastic person, and, and you know, that's part of the, the, you know, what what person gets to have that story in their life. I'm so fortunate and just I couldn't put enough emphasis on what that relationship meant to me, my career in both police work and music. And just, yeah, just I'm a very, very lucky, profoundly gratuitous person in that respect. I have to ask you a quick question. I, I read an interview is in, in uh, prepping for this episode where of course, you started out in law enforcement, you left and, and became a touring musician. And then you said something that I haven't heard too many people say that it applies to my life, where you would dream about being a cop while you were out uh, as a touring musician. And I remember I used to be in radio and I left radio and I would dream about sitting behind the console. And it wasn't until I went back into radio that those dreams stopped. And it's almost like I had finality that I've, I've come full circle and I, I've made my peace with it. Yeah, so, and, and that's a really important thing. When I came back off the road, because I took a hiatus from police work when I went out on the road with the guys from Aerosmith and, and Kansas, and when I came back, I was playing, we had the headline spot with MGM Grand, and I would work, you know, three and a half, four hours a night, and I would have all this time during the day. Well, I'd wake up in the morning thinking I had to be at work at the police department, and I'd wake up and I would have that same excited feeling that I would have every day. I never regretted one minute of that job before I went on hiatus. And, and I'd wake up and I'd like, oh, fuck, I don't have to go to work, you know? And it was a, it was a letdown. I had, I had all this time because now I'm off the road and I'm in Vegas. And um, I thought it was at that moment, you know, that I would wake up thinking I was late for work and then be bummed that I didn't have to go to work. I called the chief of police at the time and uh, the assistant chief, and, and I said, her name was Yuta Chambers. I, and she was my lieutenant when I was in NARCS when I left. She was very disappointed that I left. We had a very good relationship, and, and I had done a lot for the department on, in, in a couple of different areas with policy and things like that. 
I called her and she says, holy mackerel, I'm, you know, I'm glad to hear from you. And what's going on? What can I do for you? And I said, well, it's funny you ask. I, I want to come back. And she said, put yourself in the next academy. It starts in four weeks. Um, you're going to have to pay for yourself, but we'll hire you. We just have a hiring freeze going on. So I, I got the money together. I put myself through that academy, which was a bummer. That was the second academy I went through. It sucked. I, I went through it. And, and sure enough, just, uh, just like she said, they hired me about my fifth month in the academy and then paid for all of the previous academy. So they paid me back all the money. And so it was no, you know, they, they really held to their word. And I'm telling you, man, to live both worlds, to be able to go to work at night. And I, I still continued to play every night and work every day. I did that for 10 years. And I, I, t I wouldn't change anything in the world today. I'll tell you, I'm stingy with my sleep now. I can tell you that. <laughs> then I was getting by on, you know, three, two, three, four hours a night. And um, it's like something in your brain that says you, you, something's unresolved. It's like it's reminding you. It's called a calling. Mm -hmm. It's it, yeah. it's not nobody dreams about going to work, brother. <laughs> <laughs> you you dream about that thing that you are that you're not fulfilling. Right. Fulfillment and, and gratification are things that that manifest in terms of what we wake up thinking about that, that we perceive as a dream. It was always my dream to be a cop. It was always my dream to be a successful musician. I've got those both of those things on every level that I can imagine. And, you know, not to the extent that some people do, but I'm I wouldn't trade a minute of it for anything in the world. And my life has manifested itself into exactly what it needed to be to gratify my brain. And, and that's, that's what's called a dream, brother. I mean, and be careful what you wish for. Uh, people say, Oh, I, I want to do what you do. No, you don't motherfucker. I'm telling you right now, <laughs> you put these shoes on for 24 hours, you're going to question your sanity. And, and I'm, I know that, and I don't hold anyone else to this standard, but me. <laughs> but, yeah. It's a be careful what you wish for kind of scenario for sure. You were already accomplished, but, but how much of an impact did it make on you being able to associate with somebody who was so passionate about what they did and was so good at what they did and allowed you to be good at it too that had to impact you significantly your time with your buddy there well and so imagine this and and you've all heard the saying if you want to be good at something surround yourself with people that are better than you and that will always push you to strive to be to meet a status quo so that you can exist within this group of people. I have never been in competition with anyone in my life. I've always only wanted to be better than I was the day before on the next day. And that has served me so well because I, I never focused on how good someone else was. I learned from them and I, I was inspired by them on, on every occasion, but I never looked at it and was envious or, or competitive. I always just thought, man, I'd love to be able to do that. And I would sit down and I would practice for hours. And I didn't meet Neil because we were just in the same room at the same time. We attracted each other. In, in some form or fashion. And when I say that, you know, I was lucky enough to have him walk in the room when I was doing what I was already so passionate about. It just drove me so hard to continue to be respectable in that field because this guy hired me to do the drumming in the style of Neil Peart DVD. He hired me to represent him in a, in a professional production to teach people how to do what he did. Imagine the magnitude of pressure that's on, 
you know, a 33-year-old guy doing, you know, that's been, and of course, as soon as he asked, I didn't even consider it. I said, yes, I'll do it. <laughs> um, you know, and then the the stomach issue set in, right? Because I, 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 I imagine the magnitude of what I just committed to. But it was just like anything else. That's the performance, guys. That's me going out on the road for the first time in FTO, not having a full understanding of what it is that I'd gotten into. And I remember to this day what it was like turning into a cop. I remember feeling where I was at on what street when it dawned on me, man, I think I get this. I think I get this shit. And and my decisions were my own. And I was comfortable with them. And people started coming to me for help in decision making. And I became an FTO. And that was my performance. That was my performance metric, right? I, I When I was ready to, when that day hit... I always told my my trainees, you're going to feel it and you're going to know it. Until then, you lean on me or you lean on the people that know more than you and accept the fact that you don't know everything. And even when you feel comfortable, understand you're going to need help. And and I just went through my career like that. And it's just surrounding yourself with people that push you. That is, I think that is fantastic advice because that, that applies in every job, I think, because you go along and you're like, I don't know if I'm doing this correctly. And to have someone like you say, lean on others until you're at the point where you feel like you don't need to lean on them anymore and you've got it down. Yeah. And, 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 but understand the fact that there's going to come a day where you're going to be hit with something that you don't get, you haven't faced before, and you're going to have to l- seek out that help. Right. Don't let your ego drive that. Let your, you let your desire and your need to be better drive that. And you're going to go to people for help. And that's what makes you better. I still do that today. I'm foundational in my beliefs and my understanding of police work. I still, to this day, call my partner, my confidant, Danny King, who has been a brother and friend and colleague for many, many years. I still don't trust my own decisions in a lot of things. I still look for that support. I look for that validation in certain things because we, if we don't question ourselves, we aren't getting better. That's kind of what I was getting at right there for our law enforcement folks out there that are trainers. You know, that that's the view that you have to take that investment that you do in somebody else so that down the road they can invest in others themselves uh, so, so that this thing doesn't end. It doesn't go away. We don't lose that. I think it's even more important now. And I, I think that you probably see that in the work that you do now. So what, what can you tell us about critical incident review? Because you made the transition. What's that all about? So, you know, with force science, I, I was like everything else in my life, I was committed to that entity, to learning everything I could. Um, I became the the first advanced specialist, which is a their highest certification. I was the first one that went through that with Dr. Lewinsky. So it was me and him face to face for 600 plus hours. And I, I, mean, I can't even tell you the learning curve on that was straight up and down for a long time. And I'm still on a very steep learning curve. Even today, I'm, a, I'm an intense reader. I read all the time. I study and research all the time. I've always got new cases with new problems and new issues that I support with reading and, and my my re not and I when I say research I mean me researching research with for science as soon as I got that advanced specialist certification Dr. Lewinsky called and said hey uh, are you interested in teaching for us that's the equivalent of Neil asking me if I want to do a video for him Absolutely. that's the that's the equivalent yes. and you know Dr. Lewinsky 
uh, Bill and, and me have been close friends ever since I went through the very first class. And the way that whole thing happened, on a side note, we're in uh, Hillsboro, Oregon. And he says, hey, there's 85 people in this class. He says, hey, we got in this class, I want to let everybody know that we got one of the highest scores we've ever gotten on our test. And I just want to say congratulations to this class. I, I'm sitting by the pillar in the very back of the room like cops do. I raised my hand and Doc Lewinsky picks me out. I said, Doc, do you give out the test scores? He says, nope, those are confidential. I said, good. I'm the one who got the highest score. I claim it. Everybody else is backseat. And <laughs> so at that point, Dr. Lewinsky's like, this guy. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a self-proclaimed highest score in the room guy with four science. And I'm sure it wasn't me. The point being is that I was very passionate about that information and it because of what it was doing for the department. I had been given the keys to the use of force unit and revamping our policies and I needed to know everything about everything that I could possibly know. And after a week in that certification course, I knew one thing that I needed to know more and, it, it, you know, that that was going to be an endless tunnel. I dove headfirst down that tunnel through my chief's approval and in fact his request he wanted me to take this unit to the next level so i i did that i created the use of force training and analysis unit for the henderson police department with danny king and we we took that knowledge to a new level through application over time, I became, they asked me to teach. I said yes. And then I dove in and I went through five or six more cert classes and just, you know, reading because, of course, the first presentation I ever did for Force Science was at Homeland Security in Virginia, Alexandria. And my entire command staff went to that class. So they're all sitting on the back row. And, you know, Doc Lewinsky and everybody there, I'm doing my first thing. I must have drank 27 bottles of water on that first four hours. <laughs> I was, you know, I'm all cotton mouthed and I'm sitting here in front of a bunch of professionals. It went just well enough. You know, I I, there, I knew that there was more I needed to, to know. And, and I did that for them for nine years. After about uh, the first uh, probably three years, I became one of their senior and lead instructors. I became one of their most requested instructors simply because I brought the perspective of police work to science. And, and I did it in such a way where I had the luxury of learning, applying, succeeding, failing, learning, applying, succeeding, failing, and then teaching teaching when you throw that into the loop. Now that loop, that's flattening that curve ever so slightly. Critical incident review rose from this because one of the questions I got most often was, hey, this is great information and you experienced this. We had this conversation, I believe. All of this science is great, but what do we do with it? How do we apply this? And uh, my life's work was that. I put together this class over about seven and a half or eight years. For science wasn't interested in, in taking off on that tangent, which I completely understood. So I, you know, I told them I had to pursue my own life's work. Um, my first class was in North Carolina uh, in front of 200 people. It was wildly successful. People got it. They understood, you know, my style of, of lecturing and teaching and, and my style of learning while I'm teaching. And it just became something that started to grow its own legs. And now the, the Enhanced Force Investigation course, which is our primary course with CIR, is being taught across the country. Like I, I, I said before we started, I teaching in Henderson next Tuesday. I fly to Fort Worth and teach for a week the next week. After that, I fly to Delaware and teach for a week. I fly back to 
Salt Lake City and teach for a week. I then fly to Gilbert, Arizona, teach for a week. I then leave Gilbert and fly to Georgia and teach for a week. And that's a combination of the Enhanced Force Investigations course, including the cognitive interview, which I worked with uh, Dr. Ed Geiselman on for years. And then the uh, Forensic Video Review and Examination Force Analysis course. So two very technical courses, but they're, they're taught in a way that, you know, cops can understand and investigators can take and apply this knowledge that they've gained in these in these classes and it opens up a communication between my company my staff and these individuals out doing the job so if they've got questions it doesn't end at that slide deck Uh, my phone is always ringing from you know people that might have questions about a particular perspective or a stance on a particular issue and and i i have as much fun doing that as i do teaching the courses it's non-stop brothers i am inundated with this shit be careful what you wish for and love it because i'm right now i feel like my wheels are just getting turning i'm having the time of my life jamie it's one of those things where i believe based upon my experience that that training is needed more now than it ever has been things are questioned more now and the truth of the matter is we should have been investigating better in the past not just assuming that we were doing things correctly that we were doing things the way they should be done i'm a big believer in continuous improvement you've probably seen it and tell me if i'm wrong officers no longer have the benefit of the doubt when it comes to use of force it seems like the default now seems to be to charge officers in uses of force rather than actually get to the bottom of it it is that's a trend that we see across the country however i will tell you the big large counties that are are they're they're fighting this trend maricopa for instance phoenix it's a huge county they're in a when they go into a pre-charging process i get the the case and that case comes to me i do a full evaluation on the case and i write a full 50 to 60 page evaluation and uh, narrative on that case and the point of that is they want an expert's perspective on whether or not the officers what they did was justifiable or objectively reasonable based on the standards not looking at necessity not looking at proportionality but looking at the objective standard through a professional experts perspective and i i'm I'm going to tell you i take those cases very seriously because just like i do all my cases but the, the the simple fact that a charging entity is taking the responsibility of putting this in front of someone because they don't necessarily have all the answers before they charge based on a knee-jerk reaction to a video or some other profound or salient piece of evidence means the world to law enforcement and I will take that as deep as I can and when the aftermath comes and they want to do a news report on it I will take it although I will always refer to the report Uh, And because that's a public document, I will tell, you know, part of the news story is, is not why I believe this or not why this is justified, but the fact that this entity has asked for an expert's opinion. My opinions are in the report. Read the report and publish that. But, uh, you know, I will take this the podium and, and, and put out there that these entities are doing the right thing for the right reasons. So, you know, it, and it's a fine line that we're walking out there because a lot of these very far left leaning liberal entities are and you know what I'm talking about. And I don't want to make this political, but they will charge an officer if the officer's account doesn't match the video, if a witness account doesn't match uh, what the officer said or what the video said, they will believe everything 
outside of what the officer said before they'll believe the officer, and that will end up in a charging. And that seems extreme, but that's what we're seeing across the country. You know, all we can do is keep fighting the fight. I had some dealings with an agency recently that just had some of their agency members charged in a use of force case where the coroner has ruled that it was not a homicide. Yet because of the optics and because of of community pressure and, and to be very blunt, uninformed community perspective, because very little information has been released, these these folks were charged. Even if they're found not guilty, their lives are never going to be the same. You know, that, that, that agency is never going to be the same. They're not. And, and you said two things that do not belong in the same sentence. Optics and community pressure. Absolutely. Those the optics are, are what people think they see, because I'm going to tell you right now, as a professional and an expert in the analysis and the review and examination of video, I'm going to tell you definitively that that video will not match the officer's account of what was happening. The optics, what we see in video is a produced digital representation of an of an officer's real experience that doesn't count right it's part of the evidence but it's certainly not all of the evidence and then the outside of the optics the public pressure is based on those optics and then we end up with a knee-jerk reaction to what people think is happening with no input and no substantiating information from the officers that were involved in the incident that saw a very different thing that made decisions on very different components and and those are what have to be part of the analysis that does not mean that officers don't make mistakes and that's in some of these cases officers do use unjustified force i've seen it i've had cases against officers but that can't be the norm that can't be the starting point right officers are using force because they have the right to and then they're immediately being criminally charged that doesn't line up in my mind it doesn't it doesn't align itself with fair and impartial policing the only people who get extricated from fair and impartial policing are police officers and, and think about that. There's an article that just came out about that in a sheriff's office in Tampa or something, someplace where the officers are the only ones that get lumped into this category of people that the standards are no longer fair and impartial. If you're wearing a badge and you've got the authority, it's no longer fair and impartial for you. Well, and, and I would propose that, that some of the best remedies for that are proper training of our people up front so that they do become competent, which begets competence and confidence. And, and it's just thing that builds on each other. But then on the backside, uh, we have to have a professional and thorough investigation done by people who have been trained in human performance, video review, all those things that feed into the investigation. Quite honestly, we spend more money, we invest more time into people uh, that investigate accidents than we do in use of force oh, yeah. in many agencies, and that's unfortunate. It is unfortunate. The days are gone where officers and investigators that are, uh, you know, officers that are responsible for investigations, regardless of their position on the department, and investigators that are responsible for these, the days are gone. Uh, where the investment can't be at 100%. Absolutely. You've got to get the training. You can't, everything we do is is on video. So we have to have professionals in video that understand it, that can interpret it properly so there's no misinterpretations to, to alleviate the misunderstandings because officers are being charged. And let's face it, they're being charged. There's three components, misinterpretation, misunderstanding, and lack of knowledge. Well, those three things can be fixed 
through training, through exposure to the knowledge, and then building wisdom through experience. Absolutely. So if an agency was interested in bringing you in for some of that, that training, where's the best place for them to get information about it? Uh, so criticalincidentreview.com is uh, our website. And uh, through that, all you have to do is, is get onto the hosting a class thing. You can, there's a, a tag at the bottom and you can host whatever class you want. And we, we oftentimes build custom courses w- that will include, you know, the human performance and application of that in the investigation and a video component. The video class is a three-day class and it's got a workshop component. And then we've got the investigative course that has a modified version of the cognitive interview developed by Ed Geiselman, who I've worked with for the last nine years to refine that specifically for law officers involved in critical incidents. And that's an extremely helpful component for investigators to, you know, to get to the why in these cases, to avoid the counterfactual thinking process that can create a very terrible bias for these investigations. But all of that's available through uh, criticalincidentreview.com. It's a uh, you know, click of a button away, just email us and 2024 is filling up fairly rapidly. So if, you know, if there are interested parties out there, get in touch with us soon so we can get you on the books. One of the other things is you guys, I'm going to be out, you know, in the, in the Eastern part of the country later on this month, get on the website and look at where I'm at. Cause you've got a standing invitation to, uh, to join me in one of those classes. Uh, I'd love to have you there so you can see what we're, you know, what we're talking about, but that's an open invite. Well, when you start throwing invitations out there like that, I don't want you to later down the road, start throwing around words like stalking. Okay. That, that, that's, <laughs> that's not what's going hey, Listen, man, there's a, there's a certain contextual arrangement that goes along with that. You don't fit the bill uh, as far as the visual goes for a stalker. I know how to deal with you. <laughs> but, but hey, we're, we're, we're going to put all that stuff in the, uh, in our show notes so that our people can, can access that. I, I want to give uh, a shout out again, uh, folks, you will not be disappointed go into a class that is taught by Jamie. He, he takes this stuff right here that, that is such high level. And, and as our good friend, Brent, Greg Williams likes to say, he streets it up and, and he makes it applicable. <laughs> That's so incredibly important. I cannot recommend highly enough giving him a chance. It'll change. It should change the way you do investigations and it should uh, change the way that you train your people. But Jamie, man, we really appreciate you being here today, brother. It's, it's an honor for me. Well, I'll tell you what, the honor is mine, man, I, I, uh, to get the opportunity to talk to you guys about this stuff. These are stories that I haven't talked about in, in years, and it's, uh, it's obvious you guys did the work. There's a lot of, a lot of research that went into uh, little old Jamie on this thing. So <laughs> I appreciate some of these stories coming up from the past and, uh, and being able to share them with you and your listeners. And, um, yeah, we're here, man, and uh, I'd love to stay in contact with you guys. So, you know, my, my line is always open and uh, for questions or whatever you've got, man, I'm around. And listen, we have all the uh, all the information, Critical Incident Review. We have links to that, your uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, and we've got some videos, uh, some of your, your, your drum work. If folks want to find out more about Jamie, I encourage you to do it. It's extremely interesting. You'll find it all between the lines of virtualacademy.com. Jamie, it's been so cool to sit here, and I'm usually the one that kind of holds back, and I don't really <laughs> chime in too much, but I'm able to talk and chime in about music a little bit, and then hearing your passion about law enforcement has been a really enlightening episode for me. Well, I, hey, I appreciate it, and I do want to say one thing.